What's going on, ladies and gentlemen? We are back with another episode of New York City Meets Bama. I'm your host, Chris Merriman, with... Katerina. Today, we're going over a special topic that's uh, dear to me, because it's a process I had to go through and live through, so I'm guessing a lot of people get a lot of uh, reflection and assistance with this topic, but we are going to go through how to quit your job and go into real estate. Now, a lot of the principles we're going to be talking about today would also affect you if you're quitting your job to go into a stump grinding business or do your own tradesmanship or or whatever it is, right? These processes and and principles and the foundational moments here still correlate to whatever you're going into. So whether it's going into real estate or going into something else, the process to quit your job is daunting and it weighs on you emotionally pretty heavy. So that's what we're going to dive into today with some pretty strong action steps towards the real estate industry. We all know being an entrepreneur is hard. And comes with lots of mental challenges and confidence struggles. For me, I've dealt with imposter syndrome and found that talking to someone has helped me find myself and strengthen my confidence. It can be difficult to navigate it on your own. Now, because of professional therapists, you don't have to. And that's why I'm excited to tell you about today's sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp can give you tools to approach your life in a very different way. No matter where you are, You can talk to a professional therapist that fits your unique needs and an affordable cost. Just fill out a few questions and BetterHelp can match you to a professional therapist in just days. Put yourself first and use BetterHelp services today and you will receive 10% off your first month of BetterHelp. Use the link in the description below this show. You deserve to be happy too. Use the link betterhelp.com slash NYC meets Bama. Again, BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, slash N-Y-C meets Bama. BetterHelp wants all of you to be as successful as possible and help you reach your fullest potential. Connect with the therapist today. So, you tell me when you're ready to get started. We're ready. (laughs) Okay. All right. So, how do people juggle the time that they spend at work with the time that they need to dedicate to real estate? So... Their step one is obviously time analysis, right? Recognize all the hours outside your job that are available to you, whether it's your mornings, your lunch breaks, your evenings, weekends, PTO, vacation time, sick days, COVID sick days. It seems like that's like a new thing. Like, (laughs) oh, you have extra sick days if you have COVID and things like that. And a lot of these new strains of COVID you can still function with. So analyze all of your time available to you. And start to structure it out, right? Like you're going to have to get pretty diligent with your time and you're going to have to take some extra steps to make sure you're not wasting your time on Facebook. I've got a lot of friends that whenever they were transitioning from their job to real estate, that they would be going and cleaning their Airbnb on their lunch break, right? They'd have a sandwich in one hand and a broom in the other, like getting to it. So so you got to really be dedicated with this because while you're in the transition from going from your job to self-employed or a business owner like this, you are working long hours. There's no way around it if you're going to be able to leave that job in an effective amount of time. And uh, that's sort of your your next piece is to identify what time frame you want to get all this accomplished in, right? And what type of budgeting is your current lifestyle with? Like, are you expelling too much money on the weekends, you know, drinking away your paycheck? Are you having too many steak dinners with the wife? Like, does everybody need to come have a come to Jesus moment and work through this and say, hey, we need X so many funds so I can be able to do this. That way, at some point, we can do this every day if we'd like to, right? That's one of the harder conversations to have with your family or whoever you're living with at the moment. Yeah. So what if they tell you, I already have such a busy lifestyle, I can't do that? 
Yeah, so everybody's got the same 24 hours in a day. Like, Obama still got up and ran each morning before running the country, even though he might not be your favorite president. Still just goes to show you that everybody's got time. We all have the same amount of time. Your busyness is coming from an internal self-reflection where you're not utilizing your time efficiently or you don't have the knowledge yet to use your time functionally, right? So you're probably missing a piece of knowledge, not more time. Yeah, there's 24 hours in a day. Depends on how you use it all. (laughs) That's it. All right. So what goals for starting real estate do you recommend for beginners since we all know there's different paths that they can take? What goals? So I believe in a theory of starting with your goal in mind and working your way backwards, right? So and your goal will change as time goes on, right? You get bigger and bigger goals and, and they evolutionize and change as your lifestyle does and you want different things. Like you get to experience something and realize, well, that wasn't as awesome as I thought it was. Now I want this, right? Things of that nature. So establish your goal. Your goal is established by the objective and the time frame you're going to complete that objective in, right? So this also helps establish what risk tolerance you're going to have to have. Because if your goal is hefty and you have a limited amount of time compared to the average you know, goal standards that there are, which are retire at 65 years old and work your job till then and then you know die broke because your retirement wouldn't support <laughs> you, right? If it's above that, then you have to understand your risk tolerances to achieve these goals, So if your goal is to quit your job or have financial freedom or build a nice retirement, right? You could just be like, I want to stay at my job for the next 10 years because I've got a really cushy job and have a good retirement whenever I get out. I just need to acquire some rental properties, things like that, right? So establish what your goal is going to look like and what type of aggression level and risk tolerance is going to be needed for that. The next piece that goes with that is establishing your why, your why is what's going to drive you forward whenever you get uncomfortable or you're running low on sleep or everything seems to have no end because it's going to happen inside this process, right? Like you are going to have to work harder than you ever have before and be more uncomfortable than you have into the past because that's what this process is. Most of it's an emotional learning curve because you're having to do something new that you have been used to. Like, and your why has to be so strong. Like, it can't just be some basic reason of what you're going for, it needs to be something that means so much to you that you would die for it because it has to drive you in that mechanism. Like, is it your baby girl back home, your spouse, to leave a legacy, to be that person inside your family that breaks the chain and changes the directory of your family forever, right? Like, some people was the first person to go to college in their family, things of that nature. Like, it meant something grave to them. Or, because you feel like you were given more in this life and you should do something with it, or you feel like you were given less, and you've got a bone to pick with the world. Either way, it has to be something that you can lean on in your worst times, because that's whenever you're going to need it the most. It's something that whenever you look at it and see it on your phone screen, that you this is your why, whether it's your family or a quote that you have to put on there to wake up, right? That is what you lean on in your worst mm-hmm. times. It's what will get you out of bed. It'll motivate you to keep going whenever things get tough. Most people give up. That's why they fail. There's no other reason for it. If they never stopped, they wouldn't have failed. So that is why they don't achieve what they want. So when those thoughts of quitting start running through your mind, your why has to be a stronger driver for you to make you keep pushing through it. Humans are emotional creatures. So that's what drives us, right? So we don't even have the ability to change our emotions. So like people say that they're going to a therapist to change their emotional state towards something. But really, all we can do as humans is replace emotions. That's all we have the function ability to do. So you're spending all this time and money to fix or stop an emotion, 
And you can't. There's no way around it. But you do have to change your mindset around an emotion. Your mindset or perspective on that moment in your life or whatever it is that you're correlated to that, right? And that's hard to do. That's hard to understand that, you know, oh my gosh, every time you think about this thing, you get anxiety from it. But really, you have to reframe your mindset towards that instance in your life and say, hey, this isn't that big of a deal. Here's reality. Here's what I would lose in this matter of it. So now whenever you think about it, you're able to think about the long-term growth or whatever's going to come. You know, Push it more towards your why side than the pain of it because that's all you're able to do. You can't just say, oh, I no longer have anxiety. That's gone now. No, you replace that emotion with something else. So that's that's the process of it. Like to give you something, I guess, more in-depth, more personal. I'm laying in bed, and I'm supposed to get up and go run that morning before work, right? I'm laying there with my eyes open, having an argument in my head whether or not I should get up and go do it. It's my first day back from a trip. It's a Monday. I'm not feeling it, but I want to be physically fit. I want to live, live a long time. That's not a good enough motivator for me to get up and go. It just wasn't, right? That's, that wasn't actually my why. That was just good stereotypical reasons for me to say, hey, let's go do something productive, but that why didn't serve me. And what will get me out of bed is knowing that if I don't get up, then there's no way that I can help someone else change their life, their body, make them live longer, give them more time and freedom with their family, or help them have the ability to look in the mirror and say, hey, I'm proud of what I look like today. It's because of the things that I had to do to get here. right? So because I can't help someone do that, that's what will motivate me to get up. That's what I need to see on a whiteboard whenever I lean up out of bed in the morning and say, hey, you fat get up and go do this because you have a goal and you've got people to serve. And that's what will motivate me. So a lot of times people's whys won't be their self. It'll be your family. It'll be something you're trying to achieve for the next generation, for your kids, things of that nature. So if you're an angry kid with something to prove, use it. If your boss makes you feel unworthy and he drives the nicest car, use it. If you uh, took the easier route in life and the clock's ticking, use it. If you see your kids going down the same path as you and you want to pave or charter a new path for them, use it. Like it has to be such a strong, such a strong emotion tied to it that you will not stop. If someone is congruent to their why, they'll go farther than the person who has all the knowledge and no purpose. That congruency is everything. And that's why you hear people, and a lot of times whenever I used to learn and listen to these motivational speakers, I was like, yeah, yeah, get past this part because I didn't understand what purpose it served until I was going through these pain points and was ready to quit. And that is why they nail it so hard because if you quit, you fail. It's immediate. And the why is all that will stop you from doing that. So that's a... I hope that gives everybody a deep enough understanding of why this is such an important part to stop and meditate on and think of what will actually get you up out of bed, what will make you keep going. You know, and you need to put it, it needs to be your screensaver on your phone, whether it's a quote, a picture of family, a picture of the house that you want, whatever it is that will make you remember that emotion, anchor yourself to it. Like literally have a whiteboard and so as soon as your eyes open up, you see it or have the quotes playing right up there on your alarm clock as they're going off. Like have it in front of you all the time to get you up and get you going. Yeah. Some of the best Olympic athletes actually have like quotes on sticky notes in their bathrooms or like wherever they think they're going to see it the Everywhere. most. Yeah. So the most successful people definitely do that. Yeah. Because everybody thinks that, oh, these successful people don't have these thoughts anymore. They don't have these lingering feelings to quit and give up and things like that. David Goggin doesn't feel that. No, you're wrong. He just overpowers it. He will yeah. replace that emotion so fast 
with something that's congruent to his why that he doesn't even feel it anymore. Right. So that's the whole concept behind putting these sticky notes on the mirror. Put it on your screensaver, right? Put it on a whiteboard that every time you walk past it, you see it. So like you're sitting at work and you're like, oh man, I'm tired. I'm going to scroll on Facebook. And you click open your screensaver and it's your kids there that are living the same lifestyle you did that probably won't make it to college. And it's because of your actions. So that's what will drive you to keep moving forward. So that's the process behind it. It's important. Yeah. So everyone's scenario isn't the same. How do people know what to do next? So with any business, I would say that opening an LLC is an important piece. Like I think it's functional. I think it's easy. And I think it's a step that should be taken to open a business. The problem is some people will open an LLC and then stop right there. That's because that was the only part that, oh, pretty much they just had to spend money and do it. So don't let the LLC be a catastrophic failure point for you or a stopping point. It is your starting point. And to set up an LLC, you can obviously go to LegalZoom. That's like one of your cheapest options. You can go to an attorney to have one set up. It'll be a little more expensive than LegalZoom. Or you can go to a registered agent. And registered agents, you can typically do this online as well. Pretty much as easy as a process as LegalZoom, except for they normally give you a little better walkthrough and understanding of the process. So I use a Northwestern registered agents for a lot of my LLCs now. The reason for it is, is whenever you're using a registered agent in most states that allow them that you can actually eliminate your name from the Secretary of State, which means if someone looks up my LLC, they'll see my registered agent, but they won't see my name. But I am the owner and the controller of my LLC. And you're like, why is that important, Chris? Well, particularly if you're in real estate, if you only made that one action at the beginning of your real estate career, then that eliminates it from people being able to track down your assets so easily. So someone can search your LLC name but they can't link the mailing addresses to all your properties. So a good attorney, that's just one more deterring point. So say you put three properties in 123LLC that's got a registered agent, then those properties are there. The attorney can see you own three properties. And this is in the case that someone's trying to see you or looking at your assets, diving into what you have. Then you've got 124LLC. It has three assets in it through this registered agent. But if you didn't use a registered agent and use like a P.O. box or your home address for all these LLCs, that means all six properties are now linked to that, to that home address. And a good attorney would say, oh, yeah, they actually own this entity, own this entity, and they all are controlled at this address. That's definitely that guy. We're going to go after his assets. So it gives an attorney motivation to go after you and sue, right? Because if they're not going after something that's got equity or got gain on the back end, then an attorney's not very motivated. If all they can get is what their client can pay them, then they don't set the standard, right? They just have an hourly rate. So it detours motivation. Baseline, that's what I would do. Set up an LLC, utilize a registered agent to do so, just trying to eliminate your name off the books. And that's it. It's probably like, I think it's in my state, Alabama right here. It's 550, 650, something like that to get it done right now. Really simple. And we could go deeper into LLCs, but I think... I may lose a lot of people because, you know, I'm about to go into a little bit of depth with it just so people know why this process is so daunting and that they don't need to be scared to just open an LLC and start because I got so caught up in this asset protection race of this attorney told me this, so I'd start this little concept or this financial advisor told me this and I would go build it out and it was all useless, right? So, I may say a lot of big words, and this would probably be a good time to take out a pen and paper if you're that type of person and want to do a deeper dive on this stuff, because I'm, I'm going to skim the surfaces, really, and I'm the type of person that would have to go back and search it. And I'll be throwing out a lot of key terms for the rest of this, so for you to look into as well. 
I'm not an attorney. I'm not a CPA, not a financial advisor, not an insurance broker. None of those fancy titles that gives me the right to talk about any of this stuff, I guess. I am just a real estate investor who's had a lot of education through my experiences. So that's what we're going to talk about today. So avoid the big LLC asset protection schemes of buying LLCs with holding companies or trust structures or all this crazy stuff at the moment because they're really just three mechanisms, right? They call it asset protection, but really the, they're doing anonymity protocols, which anonymity is the process of trying to make yourself invisible. Same way of just utilizing that registered agent and keeping your name off the Secretary of State. That's a huge piece of that, right? That's half the anonymity battle right there. No one can see your name and nobody can track how many assets you have linked up to your mailing address. Fixes tons of problems. The next one is charging order protections. Charging order protections is the point of saying, hey, I've got a creditor coming after me. They're suing my LLC, and I don't want them to be able to take all my assets. So all they can do now is put a charging order against me, which means if that LLC or I personally within that LLC make money, then I have to pay that creditor that money. So as long as you never take a salary from the LLC, you can't get hit with that, right? So that's their next concept to structure that out. And they use it by different states and things like that. The next thing is to stop reverse piercing, which would be the number one goal of an LLC. Reverse piercing means that someone broke the corporate veil. Well, a LLC stands for Limited Liability Corporation. So the point of that is to limit your liability and separate you personally from it. And that is amazing. So people don't understand the strength of just a simple LLC. The problem with a simple LLC is that the attorneys made the system and the system is made to be broken because if not, they wouldn't make any money. And with LLCs, they can reverse pierce it if they see that you have utilized this LLC as an alter ego. So if you bought a candy bar at the grocery store or bought groceries on that card or video games for your kid or your wife was out and she needed to have it for something that was non-business related that one time that you know y'all were in a pinch, an attorney can utilize those transactions to pierce the LLC and go after you personally. So now your personal home, your personal cars, your personal yacht, whatever it is that you've acquired working your butt off to get, now that's pierceable. And that's the case with 90% of business owners. So most likely you're pierceable or you're going to end up into this boat with 90% of people. Pierceable Pierceable meaning that if they can pierce the corporate veil, it means now they got access to your personal assets. So say if your LLC is buying real estate over here, it owns five properties, but you live in a multi-million dollar home. Well, now they can go through those five properties that LLC owns from attacking you from whatever litigation or something, and then pierce through that and go to your multi-million dollar home too. So now they're going after all your assets that you've accumulated. Just because you made one mistake. Because you made one mistake, right. So how do you prevent that? The simplest way to prevent that is just start with an LLC and don't stress it. So you're going to start with one LLC. You're going to do your best to manage it correctly, right? Try not to spend grocery bills out of it. Pay yourself out of a check out of it. Or you can set yourself as a W-2 employee into the future. And be okay with this structure and that you might be pierceable until you got about a half a million dollars in equity. Because after that... Before that point, it doesn't make any difference, right? Like, oh, you got sued. Well, you're going to get sued either way, and now you've got no assets to take, so what are they going after, yeah. right? As long as, you know, now this is talking if you don't have a multi-million dollar home, right? If you're renting a condo still right now, then why worry about anything? You don't have anything to take. Like, don't stress it. But now if you acquire real estate and then you've got half a million dollars in equity, we'll start staging this up, right? We'll start putting LLCs in place and putting holding companies in place and trust in place and things like that as we step up how much you have to lose. And yeah, so you're probably vulnerable. Don't stress it. And if we could take human error out of the equation, a simple LLC is a super strong asset protection 
device because it has a limited liability shield. But because we involve human error in it, we're probably like the other 90% of small business owners that if we were to get sued, we'd be pierceable. And that's just a part of it because that's how the system was designed. You have an opportunity to be perfect and do all these, these things right. It's just unlikely. Um, so don't stress it. Start your LLC. Start doing business. Once you acquire assets, just recognize it's like, hey, I now have something worth taking. Let's step back. Let's talk to an attorney. Let's talk to my CPA. Because if your CPA and you don't understand how to work this thing and the attorney set it up for you, most likely you'll do it wrong and be peaceful again. So if you don't understand it, don't do it. You're not serving the purpose that you think you are. Have an understanding of what's supposed to happen, how the money's supposed to move, then do it. What resources should they use to figure this out to understand it? So each state has different rules and laws and things like that. So so you have to go to somebody inside your state once you actually get to build this out. But Lee Phillips was a great contact of learning these trust LLC structures. He was excellent just to understand how an LLC works. But you have to go state by state on what to do. But simply put, there are a lot of trainers out here with good advice. But if you can't have a deep understanding of it, like you don't, you need a coach or a mentor at this point to functionally use it, or a full team. You, you need your CP on board, your bookkeeper knowing how to operate it, your whole team that's doing your admin stuff knows it. So what if we aren't going to hire a team and we want to learn it ourselves and hire a coach? What would we look up on Google? Like what would the terms be to find someone like that? Asset protection LLC structures or holding companies, series LLCs. These are just random key terms I'm throwing out for you to yeah. have an understanding of what's out there because you've got bridge trusts that go and like take you into other countries and things like that just so you could move your assets offshore and crazy stuff like that, right? This keeps going because attorneys need to make money. So they throw out these fear tactics to you, do all this crazy stuff, and then sell you on this big idea that is probably useless if you or your team can't manage it properly. So the first step is for them to figure out their LLC and all that? Yeah, first step. First step is just basic understandings of how to move money in and out of the LLC. So you get the LLC, you set it up, you talk to a CPA, you talk to an attorney, like, how do I functionally use this? Oh, yeah, see, that was a mistake. You shouldn't have used the money that way. Or the next deeper understanding is understanding the operating agreement within the LLC because the operating agreement is the next point of pierceability for an LLC. See, the operating agreement is like your bylaws of your LLC. You do these certain things, and that shows, hey, you use the LLC as a company and abided by these bylaws. But if an attorney says, comes in and says, hey, look, you broke the bylaws of your LLC, the operating agreement, you were using this as an alter ego. You weren't following the rules. It was really just you doing the thing. He'd say, Chris was just acting like Chris, but he has an LLC. It's pierced right there. And whenever you normally like print out an LLC, even from these registered agents, most attorneys, they give you this like five or six page operating agreement. And that operating agreement is pretty much useless. It's really just a small classification of your actual state's operating agreement. So they give you this five-page thing. It covers virtually nothing, but your state that you're in has its own two to 300-page, probably, operating agreement that now you're like, oh, well, if you don't have it listed inside your operating agreement, you go by the state's operating agreement. So which if you have no functional operating agreement, you're highly pierceable, right? Because you had no rules to abide by. And you're like, oh, but uh, and you weren't abiding by the state's rules either because you didn't know them, right? They have a 300-page operating agreement. So that's the next layer op- of pierceability. So step one, learn how to manage money. Create a system in place where you functionally rotate money, pay yourself out of it, and don't buy groceries with it and things like that. Step two, learn to understand the operating agreement. If you've made it this far, 
you're already in the one percentile. If you understand these two mechanisms of asset protection, you have saved yourself so much grief into the future and probably are protected just like that. Then we start stage up to having LLCs with holding companies and things like that. Then go from holding companies to trust for long-term asset protection and legacy building and things like that. But we're a ways from that conversation. I spent a lot of time right there. <laughs> you did great. Uh, I learned a lot. <laughs> that's good. Okay. So this won't be immediate. So say you make your LLC, you're going to start into real estate or start in this business. You probably don't need this until you're about to get your first client or going to buy your first house, right? So in my in our industry, it'd be you know getting your first asset. So if you're going to buy your first flip property, then you probably need some form of general liability insurance. But it doesn't have to be the same day you make your LLC, right? Because this is a whole other expense. Wait till you're about to make some money and get the insurance set up. And you have to make sure that your insurance company or broker understands your business. So if you're getting insurance, you're like, ha I have insurance. But what does it cover? You weren't even in business yet. So what's actually covered within it? So it can be the same way that your insurance policy is so broad that whenever you actually have an incident, they're like, yeah, that wasn't actually covered. We didn't know you were doing that. You didn't tell us. Right, so start business, get these set up. You're going to go general liability insurance, then you're going to get a commercial umbrella policy and a personal umbrella policy. Umbrella policies are structured so they take up all the excess, right? So, like, say your general liability is a one million or two million dollar policy, it covers so much, then your commercial umbrella policy would cover everything on your LLC side or your business side in excess of that, the things that went wrong, right? So, and it protects a lot of different areas. So like, you know, an employee has a wreck in one of the company trucks and you're getting sued because you're the guy that has the money. Well, that umbrella policy would then kick in if it exceeded the general liability or wasn't properly covered in the general liability and things of that nature. And with the personal umbrella policy, you have a wreck in your personal car and you have a multi-million dollar house and you that person sues you, right? They're going to go after your assets. Well, you may have some amount of liability on your house, whether that will cover in that instance, I don't know, but the umbrella policy, the personal umbrella policy will cover it. So that's the purpose of that. Or you have kids that are minors. They have a wreck. Remember, the scenario of getting sued, whoever's got the money is who's getting sued. So your kid had the wreck, but you're responsible. You're the one getting sued. Personal umbrella policy will cover that. And then you've got just property insurance, right? Property insurance, you want to make sure that it's properly insured and covered, meaning that if this property is a standard rental, that's what the or the, your insurance company needs, needs to know so they can properly cover it and insure it. If it's an Airbnb, they need to know that so they can properly insure it or they may not even cover that. So you're like, oh, I had an incident at my Airbnb property. They're like, we didn't insure you for that. That's not, That's now your problem, right? And again, all this stuff is like scary things, but really it's just the functional mechanism to make this all streamlined is have intellectual conversations with your insurance broker. And if they have not had this conversation before with an, another investor, like they have never issued an umbrella policy for an investor, I would start to steer clear. If they just said, oh yeah, we'll pump you out a policy real fast, and then they didn't ask you anything about your business, I would steer clear. But if they're like, we need more information, and maybe to go out to lunch, or you come to the office, we're going to schedule an hour consultation, now you're getting closer. Now you're getting to the person that's actually going to get you covered. And you need to be ready to explain all the in-depth pieces of your business, like down to subcontractors, you know, people working on the jobs. What if someone brings their kid on a job site and I didn't know about it? Like things like go in depth with it because that's the person you want to talk to that's willing to take time another day and then go through it with you. Because the next biggest lawsuit out there is people saying um, or lawsuits between you and your insurance broker. So people are like, I have insurance. And the insurance company goes, yeah, no, we didn't agree to cover that. So that's the next biggest lawsuit because you're like, I was supposed to be covered. And they're like, yeah, we're not getting involved with this because we didn't know what was going on. And that comes to the next piece. 
ask the insurance broker, do you do a yearly audit on this? And make sure that you update any assets, vehicles, employees, things of that nature, whenever that yearly audit comes from. Because what will happen is, is your new assets acquired throughout the year will be grandfathered in. But whenever they do the audit, if you don't update them of these new assets and employees and things of the business, they're not covered anymore. So if you do a bad job on your audit, you're paying for nothing because that's what would end up happening during a litigation case or something like that. So just things to be aware of. And these are also, I'm going into phases with you, right? So like we're talking about get the LLC. Okay, we're about to buy a property. Let's get general liability. Oh yeah, the property needs insurance. Well, it's going to be a long-term hold. Let's get that type of insurance on it. Okay, well now I've got enough assets. You know, I've got $50,000 in equity. I may want some form of umbrella policy. Okay, that's expensive. Maybe after on my third property, I'll get an umbrella policy to help cover me, right? These are phases that we go through. And even with the umbrella policy, I'd probably get that around $200,000 in equity, maybe. Just depends on the speed that you're going. I say that because, you know, I can, I'm like, you know, most people can do that in so six months or a year based on how fast they want to go. Or if it's taking you a long time, you know, just analyze your situation. And are you renting a condo or are you living in a multi-million dollar house or what's your scenario? What is vulnerable at this moment? So that's what you base these protections on is your vulnerability, what people have access to. So it's not something that you should get fearful of because I wanted all my asset protection stuff so tight in the beginning. And then I never understood the reason it wasn't working or wasn't effective and all the money I was spending and, and the losses I acquired were useless was because I didn't know how to function and use the money. It was human error involved. All this stuff is phenomenal on paper right up until human error gets involved <laughs> and then it's useless because yeah. you make mistakes and void out what's available to you. So that's my take on that. That's my pieces. I just wanted to go through that with everybody to make sure they at least have that base understanding because mm-hmm. that would have saved me a lot of grief and time knowing all that early in. Yeah. As well, that's your starting point of the business side, the fancy attorney side, you know, getting that legalities out of the way. That's the boring stuff. Now we're going to go into how to acquire properties, right? Because that's the next step. You want to look at properties, things of that nature, and know what's possible out there. So I want you to just have an idea of what strategies may be available to you, right? Because everybody's circumstances are different starting out. So all these strategies are doable, but how much work do you have to do with your current lifestyle and things to be able to accomplish these strategies? So I'm about to throw out, once again, a lot of key terms. We'll brush over as much as we can so we don't get down into the mud with it all. But I would have a pen and paper ready because if somebody would have took the time to lay this stuff out for me in the beginning... Oh, it would have saved me so much time and money and effort searching for these answers, right? Because it was just chaos. It was a map of stuff. And I didn't know where the ends were. Like, when did I have all the information? Who do I need to keep buying? And all these gurus and stuff out here keep changing the names. Like, they're one day it's wholesaling. The next day it's astro flipping and all this different <laughs> stuff. It's it's all the same thing on the back end, right? So, so I was getting caught into this whirlwind of, you know, getting sold on different products and things of that nature. So let's dive into this a little bit. The first one that I'm going to talk about is called, it's referred to the methodology if you're going to search it and learn it, it's called house hacking. It's where utilize an FHA loan or your primary home loan to purchase a property. And then you purchase something that's up to a quadplex because it still counts as a residential dwelling. And you live inside one of the units because that's required by the loan. You rent out the other three. And that allows you to pay for your mortgage and hopefully make some excess income, right? That's the concept. Arbitrage. This is typically referred to as Airbnb arbitrage, but there's other methodologies. Arbitrage means someone else has an asset and you are going to do a master lease on it and sublease it out in some model that makes more money. So say they're leasing it to you for $1,000, you're going to sublease it as an Airbnb property, list on Airbnb, and then make $3,000 a month, right? So you get the spread. Or you're going to 
master lease for thousand, then you're going to rent it out bedroom by bedroom for a shared housing model, and you'll make twenty five hundred bucks a month or three thousand, whatever it is, based on the structure of the property. So you're pretty much taking someone else's asset, agreeing with them that you're going to sublease it, and you're running a business out of it at that point to make more income. So the next ideology or, or term that you're going to hear is creative finance. This encompasses a lot, everything from owner financing, executory contracts, lease options, subject tos, options, I say novations. <laughs> yeah, that's most of it there. And that's a big piece of creative finance. Creative finance is structured to help you creatively acquire properties. So traditionally, you're going to buy it with some sort of you know cash or financing, private lender, bank financing, things of that nature. And creative financing gives you the opportunity to work with the seller. You and the seller become you know, not partners, but you learn how to work together and you make the terms together as a team that suits everybody. So you may not have to come out cash. They're like, hey, this house is really in rough shape and I can't sell it, but I would sell it to you nothing down or $2,000 down and $500 a month while you rehab it or whatever it is, right? So now you're using creative techniques to work with the seller and you as the buyer to make something work on an asset for you to get the outcome you need and they get the outcome they need. That's creative finance in, in the general scope. Wholesaling. Oh, yeah. I'm guessing if you've looked up real estate investing, you have mm-hmm. heard wholesaling. Wholesaling is the process of getting a property under contract to buy and then assigning the rights to that contract to an end buyer who actually has the cash to close and things of that nature. I don't do a ton of wholesales. Now I did start out doing wholesales. And uh, it's a good process to do. It teaches you a lot about the real estate industry. It's got less risk comparative to some of these other strategies that we'll go into. Flipping process of buying a property and whatever means necessary, um, forcing appreciation into it by doing repairs to the property and then selling it on the MLS with a realtor and and you know disposing of the property that way to make a profit. The Burr method, buy, renovate, rent, refinance, repeat. <laughs> it's a tongue twister for me, but that's the process of utilizing bank financing to buy properties, then you renovate them, you force appreciation by renovating them, and whenever you do that, you get an excess of equity. So you're like, oh, you bought a property for $100,000. You put $20,000 in it. You're in $120,000. It appraises for $200,000. Now there's a difference there that you can refinance again with the bank and then take cash out and then go take that as your down payment for the next property. And you just repeat, 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 right? So as long as you are doing enough appreciation and value add to your properties, then you can then just keep turning this concept. And it's a very common concept that people do if you have access to bank financing. Options are probably too deep to dive into, but it's the option just simply means the option to purchase real estate. That's the simplest way. You can sign a piece of paper with someone that says, I have an option to buy this asset in two years for so-and-so price. And that's literally how it works, but except for you can get really crazy with all the terms inside these options. Novations. Novations is a design to help a homeowner list their property on the MLS with a realtor. So whenever we do the, these, we still utilize a realtor. That way we're not you know, breaking any rules and stuff. And inside the world of realtors, I think this is referred to as a, a net listing where you're sort of telling the seller, you're going to make this exact dollar amount and I'm going to make the overage. Well, that's what you investors do with innovation. You say, hey, you're going to make this $100,000 and if it sells for one thirty, I collect the overage, right? Your realtor gets paid, you get paid the excess. And that's the structure of innovation. And you can do it with properties that need rehab and things of that nature. Owner financing is the process of one of the creative strategies to work with the seller. 
and let them be the bank for you. So you don't come out of pocket except for what they, uh, you and they agree on. So if they say, I want $5,000 down and $500 a month, that's it. You don't need the credit checks and all the other stuff unless you and the seller agree to that. So if they just want to know that you're going to pay the bill, then great. That's the process with it. Executory contracts are a form to convey title. Executory contracts are a way to convey title, but the title isn't conveyed until the completion of that contract. That's the difference. So with like, you go to a bank, you get financing, they give you a deed to a property and they have a mortgage on it. With an executory contract, you sign a contract with somebody, they pay you payments, and then at the end of that cycle of the contract or completion of the contract, they then get a deed or title to the property. That's the difference with an executory contract compared to a traditional buy. Lease option. Lease option is the process of leasing a property and then having an option to buy it. Remember how we talked about option signal? This is a lease option. So you're going to rent the property. In the process of renting, you say, hey, I'm going to rent it for two years from you while I work on my credit or whatever it is, or while you upgrade the value of the property because it needs some appreciation to qualify for what you need it to. And then you execute the option to buy it in so many years. And then if you don't, you know, they can evict you or whatever because you signed the lease. So, And you're not forced to go through on the option. You can say, oh, yeah, my option expired. That's the end of it. Whatever the deal happens, it happens. Subject twos. Subject two deals, if you've seen Pace Moy or any of those guys, right, you, you know what a subject two is, and that's pretty common right now going around. But a subject two deal is where you're taking title or deed to a property. You're controlling that. They convey The seller conveys title to you, but you leave their existing mortgage in place, and they're still subject to that debt, all those things, and it's your responsibility paid at that point. So their mortgage, say if they got one from Wells Fargo at 3% interest, and it was 10 years ago, and it had a $200,000 balance, right? They've been paying on it. Now it's $150,000, but it still got that 3% interest rate and all those things attached to it. And you say, hey, I'll pay you $10,000 cash, but I want to take over your, your mortgage for the next two years, and then I'll refinance it later. And you can make that agreement with them that, hey, I'm going to leave your mortgage in place. It's You're still subject to the debt, but I'm going to make the payments. That way you don't have to. You'll get this green cash. You can go do what you need to do. And then at the end of that two years, you refinance it or sell the property, or you say, I'm going to hold it for the long, whole term of your loan, right? It's your your agreements with them. And there's a lot of ways that this can actually benefit a, a seller. Like you can do some things to help them get into their next house, help them with credit repair during this process and things, because it gives you a typically a lower barrier of entry on, on cost, right? Because instead of us coming out of pocket $150,000, we came out of pocket $10,000 and left their balance in place when we just took the deed. So because of that, we now have more excess funds to help them with their life, get them moved to somewhere else, get their credit fixed, work on their lifestyle, help them get therapy if they need it, or or if they've got you know drug issues, whatever it is, we can then assist them in some mechanism if they'll continue to work with us, right? And that's something that we try to do a lot. So those are a ton of options. I hope you were taking some notes and at least wrote this stuff down. That way you can do a deeper search on them. I just wanted to give you an overview. That way you know what's accessible to you. And uh, whew, I hope this saves you a lot of time hunting all these theories and just lets you, you know, dig into what you want because a lot of people are like, niche down into something immediately. Well, it's hard to niche down into something whenever you, you're still searching for what all is out there. You don't know if that's what, that's what you geek out over yet or if that's what you love doing. So back to your goals and back to your why. If, if your goal is to make as much cash flow as your salary and then quit your job, you should probably look at opportunities to increase cash flow with a property, like like taking assets and doing things like shared housing, Airbnb, corporate housing, insurance stays. Again, these are key terms I'm throwing out for you. But simply put, shared housing is rent by the room where you take a house and then upcharge and then rent each room out individually and everybody shares the bathroom or shares a kitchen type of thing. 
and it produces a higher income than just standard renting a three-bedroom, two-bath house. The next thing is Airbnb is short-term stays, and you list typically through the site called Airbnb.com, right? And uh, you then are renting out nightly stays to a furnished rental. And corporate housing and insurance stays are typically mid-term to long-term stays, also with the furnished rental. So it's like normally 30 days or longer stays. So Airbnb is considered the short-term. Mid-term stays are 30 days and longer. And uh, that also produces a higher cash flow because you got someone that's either displaced from their home and the insurance company's paying for it, or they're a corporate rental, meaning their company's coming in and paying for it for them. So you're getting paid by an entity, and that's why it's at an escalated rate, and you provide a nice furnished house for somebody as well. So that's the highest cash flow opportunities I know of in the residential real estate space. So if your goal is to acquire properties and then quit your job once you get to so much cash flow, well, then these are your strongest cash flowing avenues that you can take in the residential space. Um, if you need a chunk of money and you're going to go for it after you get the chunk, then you should look at flipping, wholesaling, the burst strategy if it's done properly. You can get a chunk of money that way too. You can buy a property and then do seller financing on it, which would be instead of you owner financing a property to somebody, you seller finance somebody and you establish the down payment amount. So you could say, hey, I'll seller finance this to you for $30,000 down or whatever it is. So those are ways to get chunks of money in your hand and still make cash flow and things like that based on what your goal is to initially get out of your job. With all that I just went over, it's really hard to not get analysis paralysis because I just went over so much content and things like that. So I just want you to know, like, you know, you need to establish your risk tolerance as well. Like, I said all these great things. You're like, well, flipping houses makes the most money. That's what I'm going to go for. But as well, there may be an easier barrier of entry is also. Like, house hacking, I'd say, is one of the least risky avenues to take. Because you're using, instead of just buying a house that you're now in debt, and it's eventually going to appreciate and you'll make money on the sale, you're buying a asset that then has the ability to cash flow more. So say if you buy a four a quadplex, right, a four-unit building, and you live in one of the units because that's what your mortgage says, and you rent the other three out. Standard rental, hey, you'll probably break even or, or make a little more than your mortgage payment. You're on the start of investing. But what if you took that same asset and then Airbnb'd the other three units or broke them up at bedroom by bedroom and done shared housing or midterm stays, corporate housing, things like that? Now you just increased how much cash flow that asset's going to make really fast. So now you're making it move faster with less purchases. So you just used your first-time home buyer, most likely, or some sort of conventional loan that you qualified from the bank, utilizing your job income, and forced this property to create more cash flow. It's a great mechanism. Next one is wholesaling. Wholesaling is going to let you learn a lot of strategies to collect off-market properties with minimal risk in the game because you're low money out of pocket besides your marketing and things. And also, you're not actually having to buy the asset. You can wholesale the asset and then request to watch the process with a flipper. Now you're studying of how these things actually happen. Did the guy actually make money? And you get to analyze that process from afar. Arbitraging would be like my next least risky because you're not actually buying the asset and owning the asset and the liabilities of it, right? You're subleasing a property. And please do make sure, obviously, to tell the person you're subleasing from what's actually going on. So the property, if you're going to Airbnb it, tell them you're going to Airbnb it. Tell them that you're going to take care of the property and do certain things. And that's why this relationship works. But don't lie to them because you may void out their insurance or something like that. And, and make sure you have adequate insurance to cover them as well. This is just morally and ethically correct things to do in arbitraging. Same thing, there's moral and ethic things you should do when you're wholesaling a property with a seller and your end buyer. So, you know, we could go a long time into ethics because a lot of people misrepresent inside this industry. But anyways, the next one would be the burst strategy. And it's also valuable because a bank is analyzing the deal with you. 
So if the property doesn't appraise, you don't get to play, which makes it now safer because you're getting a second set of eyes. And it's not just a realtor who wants a commission because you know you haven't really worked with them yet and they want you to buy the property. So they're like, it'll sell for a quarter of a million, but really it only sell for 175. But they wanted you to buy it so they could list it because if it goes south, they're still going to make their commission. Like it's not not so rough on them, right? So make sure that um, that's what you're looking at. But those are the the four. If I'd say you're you're like new and you're you're worried about it, those are the least risky ones to dive into and where most people I'd say you need to start at. And then watch other people find mentors and start analyzing and digging deeper into these other strategies while you're doing these to get your start and get the ball rolling. As long as they serve your end goal. That is the starting steps of understanding all these things. Don't get analysis paralysis. I gave you a breakdown of four to analyze. House hacking, it'll take you two days of research. You'll be so engulfed with it, you'll understand every aspect of it. And then you can start looking at how to you know, look at your credit and things like that to make sure you qualify for things like that. Wholesaling, there's probably a million free videos on YouTube for it to, for you to have a deep understanding of it. So start researching. Burr strategy, tons of teachers, tons of free content on that as well. Very simple. Arbitrage. Also pretty simple. You can get free contracts out there. A lot of people promote this concept. So you have the access to fingertips in our influencer age now. It's right here. You just You just got to utilize it. So those are four. If you're scared to death, start there. Start learning those and see which one you like the best and start with them. Yeah. Well, there you go, Chris. How do you identify which market to start in? Which market to start in? So... Really, you only have two options. Like, we can start that breakdown. So, you got investing in your backyard or investing virtually. So, investing in your backyard means, you know, it is what it is, right? Like, you either need to invest in areas that you would be willing to live in or that the cash flow supports. That's the super simple version. I'm about to break it down deeper, as you could imagine. But that is, that's the simple version. It's your backyard or virtual, meaning somewhere that you probably aren't traveling to. You may not be going to look at all the assets and things of that nature yet. Because if you're doing one of these easier strategies we're talking about, you don't have to have as much involvement, right? Wholesaling, you may not ever need to see the property to wholesale it. And a lot of things with, once you get scaled out, flipping and whatnot is the same way. So we'll go virtual. Start there because the virtual breakdown then leads into the same way you'll analyze the properties in your backyard. So start with virtual. Start with the big picture. So you're going to look at stats, trends, things like population growth, crime rates, job growth, size of colleges, and, and quality of schools, right? That Like all that stuff really impacts an area and a market. And if they don't have those indicators and you're looking at the stat, like, hey, this year, and then the trend, right? So if somebody's got a, an area's got a de- declining population growth, you know, you should be weary of that area, right? And if job, and if job growth is going with it, that's a problem. So... You can find all this information. And these are simple Google searches. If you see the population going up and job growth going up, uh, crime rates dropping or maintaining good school ratings and increase in students or stable student population at the colleges, you likely have a, a market worth digging into. And as well, I normally would say as a easy rule of thumb, you try to target cities with 100,000 people or more. The data gets a little wonky sometimes, maybe you get less that. And uh, there can be more volatility because there's less people. And as well, just like a pro tip to analyze, a lot of times I've seen on census counts things, population was going up, and then it took a dive, and then randomly it hiked back up. And that's like, what happened in this area? So you can look at different jobs coming in. If someone, the city may get made a move to make it, you know, improve the city. But a lot of times what happens is you have a city limits, and then they take that city limits and they expand it into an area that had 
a lot of vacant properties and was really cheap and beat up and was like the war zone or ghettos. Now they encompass that and they increase their population growth. So the stat looks good, but in reality, they just encompassed a dirty area of the city. Now you may have the opportunity of a, an improvement, you know, an opportunity zone or or an expanding market now that the city is actually going to take a hold of this and they have they have plans to fix this problem. So you may have an opportunity or you may have a declining market with bad leadership that you should steer away from. That's it. That's the difference of it. You know, the next step we're going to go to is the same steps that you would utilize to break down the properties in your backyard. But these stats will give you the indication of which markets you want to target overall. It gives you quick studies. And with our local market, we're going to go in depth. We're going to go a little deeper on this. And really without seeing this breakdown on a piece of paper, I'm going to be saying a lot of words and hopefully you can stay with me. But, you know, each one of these topics, I'd say we're going to like take a piece of paper and write down left to right on them. Because we, there's a lot of data that goes into this. So let's start basic and just visualize with me. We're going to break down your market into little macro markets, and you're going to have multiple zones. So zone one would be the core area of your market, right? Probably around where the city limits ends before the suburbs. So the city limits ends right here and before the suburbs start and where most of your population is going to be. Zone two would be like your suburban areas. You know, it's a bigger tier. Like it just boom, blows up, Right. And those little communities outside the city, likely where rental regulations start loosening up and uh, there's less inventory available to purchase, things of that nature. And uh, there's less inventory on the market, right? So you had a core area with a bunch of recently sold properties and things of that nature, then a second area that's a little bigger, more suburban area, less restrictions, and less inventory available to buy. Zone three is more like your boonie areas. Like you're just out too far from the city. For most people, most people don't like it. There's fewer houses available. The houses that are available stay on the market longer. They've got longer days on market and things like that. People who are living here, maybe they're still commuting to the city or they might be going to another city because their commute's probably 45 minutes to an hour and 15 minutes away from the city, right? So we're talking some distance now around your city. And that's the simplest starting point see this, right? So your tier one market guys are probably working and living and having their nightlife in that city. Tier two, same thing. They may be living on the outskirts, but they're commuting to that city for work and nightlife. Tier three, now you get options. They're maybe going to this city. Maybe they don't go to the city because they're you know a little wonky or whatever it is. Or maybe they're driving to another city because there's another city about an hour away too. So most of our breakdown here is going to be inside of our zone one and zone two markets. Zone three gets out there. There's not hardly enough data to analyze things and, and make heads or tails of it unless there's an encroaching city. And we'll dive into that too. Your next step would be to break this down into micro markets. So we're going to find the hottest areas, hottest neighborhoods, and you're going to need a new set of data, right? So we started out with the full market view of getting data off Google, like just doing Google searches to get us our baseline to start understanding these things. And the next step is you're going to need local data. And local data comes best locally, meaning get it from local realtors, local brokers, local public figures in the community. You know, it takes a little deeper research. So you have decided, hey, this market has enough metrics that I'm going to dive into it deeper and see what's going on because I want to actually invest here is why you're starting to do this deeper dive. And uh, you're going to need to collect a lot of data. So the first piece of data that we're going to get. Now we got our piece of paper here. You understand the tiers. we got a piece of paper. The first piece of data you're going to want is the number of listings that are on the market right now. So the, the amount of homes that are available for purchase. Like if you were to pull up Zillow, but really this is the data is coming from the MLS. So if you were to pull up the MLS, there's 200 homes available for sale right now within this city. And then the number of homes sold per month. So let's say that's you know, 50. 
And then we can create, so we got number of homes on the market, number of homes sold per month. Now we can create our calculated inventory longevity. And what that big word means is that we're calculating how many months of inventory we have. So if you got 200 houses available and 50 houses per month sell, we've got four months worth of inventory, right? Because it would take four months of 50 houses selling to eat up all the inventory. That gives us an understanding of what's available on the market, right? So if you got 200 homes available and, you know, 100 are selling, well, that means there's only six days worth of inventory. Things are going pretty smooth, right? Like houses are selling now. So now you're getting to where you want to be at because you want 30 days, 60 days as we start pushing things if we're in a buyer's market versus a seller's market, or at least in this area. So that's our first step, right? And we take those two pieces to equal our inventory piece. And then you want the median price sold in the city. Now, we're going to do two breakdowns. We're going to get all this data I'm referring to for the city, right? The city limits of that area. And what we're going to do with that is that's going to be our like safety net. Like We base everything off the city overall because the city will get averages for them. And then we'll break down every single zip code inside that market after that point. So if you've got nine zip codes, you want these same metrics for all of them to see how comparative to the city is this particular zip code taking longer to sell compared to the city? Well, that may become dangerous, right? Things of that nature. So now we're going to break it down. So now we're going median price sold in the city. Now we want the median price sold in the zip code. This tells helps you tell the quality of the neighborhoods in a zip code. If they're higher end, lower end, or you're they're close to the median of the city. So like say, let's say the median price point in your city is a quarter million. It's $250,000. But then you get to a market and it's $100,000. That's what its meeting came to be. Well, that's a lower end area of that city then. That overall zip code is lesser than compared to. Or you get there and the median was three or 250 of your city, but now this particular zip code has a um, median of 350000 Well, now you know this area particularly is a higher end community, right? So it helps you start to break this down and figure out where your war zones are, and where your rental communities are versus where your high-end homes and your engineers and things live, right? It helps you break this down into a piece. And if that's your median sales price is two fifty, that helps you identify your first-time and second-time home buyers because that's who's there into the city for the most part. That's who's helping create that median. Whew. All right. And I also say, as just a safety metric, try to stay around or below the median of the city on purchase price. So say if it's a quarter million, I would always attempt that my property ARVs, my after repair values, or my appraisal values would be a quarter million or less. The idea behind that is a safety market because that means that's where the biggest buyer pool is. You'll see that those typically have less days on market unless they're a war zone or something. That's why you want the days on market per area because if you've got houses that price $100,000, but they have 90 and 120 days on market, well, we've got a problem. It's not a desired area, even though it's cheap. Right. So that's what gives us the idea or ability to market that. But the median is a safety marker saying if you buy a house, it's three hundred fifty thousand dollars and then the market changes. Well, now your buyer pool that was there just shrunk again. Right. Or if interest rates climb up, that buyer pool shrinks faster because you have a median, which means 90 percent of your buyers or 80 or you know some metric of a higher quantity are can buy around two hundred fifty thousand dollars and lower. So it's a safety marker. The next thing you want is sold to cash buyers. The way you may have to say this to your realtor to help collect that data is cash transactions. This will show you where most of the investor activity is in your city. And that's going to be important for wholesalers and flippers. Because if you're a wholesaler, you need cash buyers. Well, you want to find properties where cash buyers want to be, right? Because you're going to wholesale it to a cash buyer. 
So uh, for your flippers, though, you want to be careful of where there's a ton of cash buyers at because if you're flipping where a lot of other flipping activities going on, all it takes is one or two flippers to have a bad week or month or whatever, and they sell a property cheap because they need cash. Well, that cheap property is now a comp to your property because you were into the same neighborhood as them. So if they sold that, and now your price goes down because they had to sell cheap. And you didn't do anything, but you were around all these cash buyers. So try to be where all the conventional, the finance transactions are in these nicer neighborhoods with good days on market and things of that nature. Wholesalers, like, hey, let the people make their decisions because, you know, people who are selling, it might have been, the goal was for this property to be a rental. He had a bad week. He sold the property cheap and he didn't even have intentions of flipping it, but it still will impact your comparables, you know, on the, uh, the appraisal of the property. So the next piece, obviously, would be sold to finance buyers. You want to be able to separate that and understand these. And your realtor can collect all this data from the MLS if they can't get you another one because it is accessible. They just got to click the right buttons and understand their own system. And if they can't do it, they may not be the right realtor for you. So this helps shows where the retail buyers are, helps you identify the first time and second time home buyer neighborhoods, things of that nature, and where I'd prefer to flip properties at. Now you want to go into average days on market. Remember, we got this for the overall city, and we got this per zip code. Average days on market. Days on market help you identify what you can do in that zip code. So if you've got longer days on market in the city as a whole, then it may not be as hot of an area. But if you have longer days on market in a certain zip code, now you may know to stay away from that or only buy rentals there or only wholesale. Probably not where you want to be flipping properties. You may be able to do some creative finance there, things of that nature. Yeah. That's the base of days on market. They help you establish what types of strategies are available to you there and helps you give an indication because if the city's selling in 30 days and that one's selling in 90 days, there's something going on that's not proper. Be aware. The next piece is um, you can add other data in. This right here, if you just baselined what we just went through and had that on a spreadsheet with the city and all the zip codes, you would then understand what you're looking at and have a breakdown of your market or whatever market you're about to target. If you are a crazy man or want more data or whatever it is, then you can start adding in uh, square footage amounts, average square footage sold or price per square footage sold, new constructions built and sold, LLC owned versus individually owned. And some of that data, if your realtor got wonky on, which won't go into how to do it because you know there's not a screen here watching me, but LLC owned and personal owned and things like that, you can also get from websites called ListSource and PropStream. So two other things to write down if you're new to all this. As well, if you want a deeper analysis of your rental because you're going to be a landlord or you're going to be Airbnb and things, you can get Airbnb data from AirDNA.co. That's a great spot to start as well from any Airbnb property managers in the area. Also, same thing with rental information. You can get that from property managers in the local area. Here's what I'll tell you, though. That data is not stored in the MLS. So with working with property managers, be wary because they may give you some answer without actually looking at their books to give you accurate data. So I would ask for actual data of what's actually active and rented and and not vacant right now at these rental prices because they're just trying to get another client or could be, right? So don't go for the sales tactic, go for data and always double or triple verify this information. I would not take one property manager's advice on this. Really same thing, all this data. I always get two realtors to do my data as well. That way we know somebody didn't just like, oh gosh, this guy, and then they just put data on. So property managers, double verify. Realtors, I would suggest double verifying as well once you're getting this initial data because this could make or break your business right here. So that is a lot of data that will help you make educated, informed decisions in your market, right? There's more stuff we could go into, but that's a good base. You're like, hey, I now understand what my market looks like. 
the next steps that we could go to go deeper once more. And I just want you to be aware of it because if you've already broke down a market this far and you're actually doing what I'm saying, well, then you may go ahead and do this next step. So I'll dive into it real quick. <laughs> so you can watch for things like subdivision developments, new roads being built, Walmarts, Home Depots, Costco's, big industries like that are big buildings, big companies going up because they do a ton of market research before they put up a store. So if they're putting up a store, you have an emerging area within your market, right? So as well, access to major roadways and public transportation. like And as well, if you go to the Chamber of Commerce, city meetings, things like that, you get the scoop on what's being built. Like, like if they're adding a new lane for a bus route or they're adding a highway or a sky bridge or any of these crazy things that means there's an area coming into the city that's about to emerge or blow up as well as oh, starbucks chipotle they love to have a high walk score but if they can't get a high walk score because it's just not available it's not possible all the land's already bought or they can't get access to it they will buy the corner lots on the main road going into a new subdivision that's being built. And they have data, like they want so many homes being built into the area and things like that, which drives up the values in that area based on what your builder's building, right? So so now you get to analyze this market and buy preemptively. You, even if you're just buying land, it's going up in value. So this is how you buy emerging areas in your market or emerging markets, right? You could even go backwards and be like, well, Chris, I looked at this other market and say it only had a population of 50,000 people. Well, if you saw that there was government money being dumped in or a bunch of roadways and stuff being built, I probably wouldn't hesitate to invest in it, right? Because I see substantial growth coming for some reason. Plants are being built there, things of that nature. So that's the next step to all this. You do your big market, your virtual market breakdown, if that's where you're going. Next thing is analyze the market itself and break it down into, into zones and then break down all the data. And then you can decide, okay, now I want to go deeper. I want to get the most equity gain possible if that's your exit route. And we're going to go for the emerging areas of my market because typically a city is expanding in, in some way, right? Whether it's just a little no bonnet or, or a new, new area coming up, things of that nature. And you can be on top of that and be in the forefront of it buying that type of property. All right. And then one other piece is another substantially growing area, I would say, is that so if you've got a city that has zone one, zone two, zone three in it, and as well, another city over here that has zone one, zone two, and zone three, where those two zone threes start to collide, if cities start expanding in the middle right there, those zone threes become zone twos and start expanding out because the city limits is coming to them. And that is an amazing area to make a lot of money because your appreciation goes up so much faster because the cities, two cities are expanding that area, which makes it an ideal traveling point and location to live. So now you're buying, now what's a zone two, but it's quick and easy commute to both cities. So another great spot if you want to track down emerging markets is to identify things like that happening. So that is probably where we have to stop today because we have been going for a minute. And if anybody wants a part two to this, if this was palatable in any kind of way, I'll probably have to do like a breakdown, like a, to a training to this. But I did want to everybody at least have these key terms to analyze because that was a huge piece for me was just randomly searching and scouring the earth not knowing what was available so if all you did from all this was understand make an llc and start <laughs> and then take all these key terms and research the different investing strategies and understand your risk tolerance and your why that was phenomenal it was worth creating this podcast for you Aww. thank you so much for staying tuned if you want a part two to this let us know I don't know how they would hit me up or anything like that, but Kat can tell you. Other than that, I hope you got value. Email us at at gmail.com. Perfect. Yeah, email us if you want us to make a part two to that because I can go deeper. Or a whole comment lot deeper. on YouTube. 
or comment on YouTube. That would do it as well. So mm-hmm. let us know if you want more of this type of content. I can break it down as deep as you want and what aspects. You just got to tell me what you need right now, and I'll do it. Thank you so much for staying tuned. I hope you learned something. We'll see you next week. Bye, guys.